Welcome back to the Jasmine Star Show. I'm so happy you're here. I have to tell you a little known fact about me. I love Shark Tank. Okay? Like I love Shark Tank. I love the profit. I love undercover boss. Like y'all, if you leave me alone with that, what is that cable network? It's not MSNBC. It is, I forgot what the cable network was. But if you leave me alone on a Saturday afternoon and I just want to check out, watch me turn out for any of those business shows. Okay, don't judge. So you could just imagine my surprise and delight where there's this episode of Undercover Boss and it profiles a woman by the name of Kat Cole. And they start off with Kat's story, explaining how she worked at Hooters and she worked her way up the corporate ladder and then became a vice president of Focus Group. And she's really transforming the business and she had a massive turnaround at Cinnabon. Now, I was watching a rerun of Undercover Boss. So it was already a few years old, but I was so intrigued with who this woman was and how well-spoken she was and how she went undercover to different Cinnabons and really got down and dirty, like literally scrubbing the Cinnabon trays. <laughs> she was um, making the iced coffee drinks and the fruit smoothies, and she was just connecting with people And what I realized that I was watching that on a subconscious level was that she was a leader trying to understand who were actually on the ground floor of Cinnabon. Years later, right now, I am about to introduce you to the cat Cole, the girl I saw on Undercover Boss. I was like, okay. So how did our paths intersect again? Well, on this little tiny platform called Clubhouse. I was listening, I came across to this really like magnetic person, this magnetic voice, and I thought to myself, why does she sound so familiar? I go to her clubhouse profile and I realize, oh my goodness, this was the Cinnabon undercover boss. So I followed her, I joined her live conversations, and I learned so much specifically about what it means to be a leader, what it means to grow in business, what it means to overtalk to look at the face of what she calls the internal saboteur. Oh, we're going to get to that in a second. And she talks you through how to narrate a positive framework in running a business, becoming a leader, and using your voice. So I have to tell you, she is a seasoned executive, and she is a leader with deep expertise on building global brands and businesses and high-performing teams. She's also a board member, an investor, an advisor. I am telling you, she probably has lived 87 lives in the time span that most people live one. So she has broad experience in leading consumer brands, food, retail, and scaling franchise organizations through various stages of growth. In our conversation, we discuss what Kat has learned from her experience to help business owners who make more than $20 million per year scale their endeavors and when should you scale. We also talk about if she were starting a business today, right now, what are her top recommendations to make money fast and grow a team and what does she need to do to make more and not work more? And we focused on building a personal brand. As she's building her personal brand, I wanted to know how is she leveraging platforms like Clubhouse and Instagram? and so much more. I know you're going to love it. Let's dive in. Okay. 
To begin, I'd like to kind of recap a pretty inspiring narrative on how you became a business mogul. Yes, I am using the word business mogul. So you start off your first job in high school and it was at Hooters, a necessity to help support your family and pay for college. And then because you're you, you were promoted into an executive role, which is incredible. And then the unthinkable happens. You drop out of college, you travel the world opening Hooter franchises and become vice president by the age of 26. Okay. I should probably repeat that again at 26. And if that isn't enough, a letter from Ted Turner helps you gain admission into an MBA program without a bachelor's degree. I mean, come on. And before you know it, you're recruited by Focus Brands to become the president of the then struggling Cinnabon. And then you completely transform businesses into a billion dollar brand, complete with a couple appearances on Undercover Boss. And today you and I are chatting Wow. Okay. How did I do? I had to go through all my notes. I'm like, I cannot commit this to memory. You've done so much. Did I miss anything? Kat, welcome to the Jasmine Star Show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. And uh, there's lots of stuff in between, but those were great highlights. Okay, good. And as we go through questions, please feel free to pull out the stories. I think that the narrative on how we learn how to become better business owners is often typified and explained so beautifully through personal experiences. So please, while I do have questions, feel free to riff and go on your own because you are a powerhouse. So you have a very inspirational story, but it couldn't have been easy. So what are the biggest lessons that you learned probably in the first like five to 10 years of your business journey? I have to say that I do follow you on Clubhouse. That's how I first encountered you in like what I would say a personal capacity, although we're not friends. This is the first time we're actually chatting. But you were talking about this instance where you were in a C-suite and somebody had come in and he did not want to be, I believe at the time it was their CEO or president. And it was begrudging because he was like an heir to the company. And this person ended up keeping you out of meetings and keeping you off calendar invites and kind of shushing you and keeping you at margin that was stopping you from doing what it is you were supposed to do. So that was just one story that I committed to memory. And I thought to myself, there's got to be other things that you learned in your first like five to 10 years. What are a few takeaways being first working in that executive realm? You know, in the executive realm, it's evolved. I mean, in those early years, I was so young. I mean, I was typically 30 years younger than my peers. So, you know, I'm 26, I'm 27. People in high level positions and companies doing, you know, billions um, in sales are typically further down the road in their life and their career. And so in the case of when I was an executive at Hooters, these peers had been in business longer than I had been alive, literally. And so there, there's a very interesting dynamic that develops when that's true. I mean, there are exceptions to every rule. There are some people who were so far my senior and we just clicked and it was amazing. And there were others who were a little closer to my age and we didn't click. So it, you know, it didn't fall along the lines of age per se, but certainly there was a gap in my experience in the world and in the workplace, yet I was incredibly qualified to be in my role. And certainly I interacted with some executives that just didn't get it, right? Like she's so young. How is she here? Why is she here? I paid my dues. I've been doing these things. You know, it, it, there is this interesting mindset that develops in some people that whatever I had to do to get here, so too must you. Therefore, anyone who's decades younger couldn't possibly be qualified. Okay. But how, before we get into actually the lessons, like, I think it's worth pausing, but like, 
why do you think you were there? Like, what did you do? What qualities did you possess? Because those questions might sound valid to a lot of people who are listening. What do you think you did? I I did a few things. One was I worked every job in the company. I knew the company inside and out. And every single one of these other executives had come from the outside. And so they brought a ton of value. And so did I, just in a different way that actually complemented their experience. The other piece was there was a strength to my youth. I represented the employee base. I represented a young consumer. I mean, there were just certain things I could see and appreciate that someone who is 30 years my senior is not likely to also see and appreciate. And and when you add those things up, that's real value. In addition to, I was, even though I was very young, an incredibly seasoned leader. I've been leading people in paying jobs since I was 15 years old. And, and then starting at Hooters two jobs later when I was 17 and then traveling around the world to open franchises when I was 19, leading teams on other continents. And so my muscle of leadership was quite well-developed. And uh, so although I was young in years, I started early. And so for some of my peers, even though I was a few decades younger, I had just as much leadership experience mm-hmm. in years as they did. Many people spend you know, a decade or so as an independent contributor and not until later do they start leading people. I started leading people as a teenager. And so if you add all that up, leadership capabilities, knowledge of the business, a real advantage in representing and understanding and appreciating not only a younger employee base and consumer, but then all the things related to that, technology, trends, um, businesses, partnerships, the ability to relate and craft training materials and communication that really connected with the workforce. I mean, there were layers and layers and layers of things that led to me being qualified to be there. Uh, Okay. So we have a mix of listeners, but I would venture to say the vast majority of people have a very passionate, beautiful, amazing side hustle business that they're growing, but they're not quite yet into being a full-fledged, full-time entrepreneur of their own business. So outside of age, what is a lesson that you learned being led by somebody in a very positive way? And then what was a lesson that you learned leading other people? So we can talk to two sets of business owners, people who are currently in a different structure being led and then within their own structure, possibly leading others. I'll, I'll stay on the, on the early years first. When I was 18 and I was a waitress, I was a Hooters girl. My first manager, the woman who hired me, her name is Bonnie. And um, I remember... I was working two other jobs. I had three jobs and uh, I was late quite often because I was trying to get from one job over to Hooters to start my shift. And one shift at the end, she said, could I see you in the office before you go home? And I said, sure. And she sat me down and she said, look, you're great with your peers. You're awesome with your customers. I would love to give you more responsibility and more shifts but I have a business to run. And when you're late, other people have to pick up the slack. And I need to know if I can depend on you. And if I can't, we should cut back your shifts. And then maybe even then it might not work out. If I can, now that I'm reminding you of how your tardiness impacts others' work and life, then I'd love to give you more responsibility. And it was the first time I remember being called out and treated like an adult. 
I mean, I, I worked, I helped raise my two sisters. My mom worked three jobs. She fed us on a food budget of $10 a week for three years. We left my dad when I was nine. You know, responsibility wasn't new to me, but managing multiple responsibilities and then deciding where I would commit and the things I would need to eventually say no to or stop doing was a new thing for me. And she was the first person to lead me with accountability. And while that might not sound positive because it was her calling me out, I I viewed it as positive. I mean, over time, I saw her lead in a way that was consistent. She held everyone accountable with kindness and with grace. And I would have jumped, you know, metaphorically speaking, I would have jumped in front of a train for Bonnie. Like um, she was always there for us. And because she held a consistent standard, it made it clear that delivering on that standard was valued. And appreciate. And I learned that from her. So that was a good example. And on the flip side of you leading other people, was there a moment where you felt really proud or was there a moment where somebody came to you and said, I appreciate this? Like now being on the other side of that leading and having that experience, is there a lesson along the way there? Well, so many. I've been leading people for a few decades. So plenty of um, high points as well as challenges. But Um, One example I would give is I remember during the Kavanaugh trials in the U.S., Kavanaugh hearings, and I was very vocal on social media about the broader topic of believing women, of acknowledging how all too common women are exposed to sexual assault, sexual violence, and that the conversation needed to be normalized. And I used that as an opportunity to share my thoughts on the topic publicly as just me, Kat Cole, not Kat Cole, the president and COO of Focus, just Kat Cole, but you can't remove me from my role in the company. Right. And I remember that next day after I made several posts, I mean, the line at my door was longer than it had been in a while. One after another, young women coming in to tell me, thank you for speaking up. I don't have any friends in college who weren't sexually assaulted or harassed. Um, this is this time in our country is very triggering for me. It makes me proud that someone at your level would speak out on an issue. And I have, I mean, innumerable times where something like that has been the case, that I have spoken up in the company or spoken out outside of the company in a way that if I had not have, wouldn't have really been an issue. But because I did, it was so apparent how much it was wanted and needed and appreciated. And it's a different situation than the one I described. It's not so much like one-on-one. Right leading people. But I do think in the times we're in, people need to hear that that is a positive version of leadership. I love that. And I want to put a pin here and just like hold a mirror back to what was said. It was like, you said something as Cat Cole. And then the next day you went as in as Cat Cole COO. And there were people who identified with the story and respected you in a bigger way. And I think even if we don't all have massive platforms or really high ranking in a large company, we all have a voice and the power behind it. So thank you for setting that example. Speaking of being in those roles and having a voice. When you were in your 20s and you're in upper management, large organization, in and outside of opposition of perhaps people who don't understand it, did you ever have moments of, what am I doing here? Who am I to do this? Did you ever second guess yourself? Anything like imposter syndrome related? 
Yeah, I mean, I like to call that voice in our heads the internal saboteur, as opposed to imposter syndrome, because the oh, syndrome, yes. syndrome sickness makes it sound like it's rare. And when all, we all have it, it's that voice. And the question- Wait, What was I, that again? What was it again? Internal saboteur. So saboteur. Oh, come right? on. Internal saboteur. I'm going to get that printed on a t-shirt. That just sounds like a t-shirt you'd wear under a blazer. Yeah, oh, come like, on. <laughs> and so what I like about the internal saboteur, the voice that says- who am I to question them? Or do I belong here? Or should I even speak up because they're so good? Or, you know, those voices. What I like about that voice is it is a sign of humility. There is a beauty in that voice, right? It's the recognition that I am not everything. The dark side of it is when we let it convince us that we are nothing. And, And there is a space in between that when I hear it, I have to decide, should I listen to it, right? It's natural. I'm new here. I'm different here. It's natural to question my authority or um, my relevance to the moment or the situation, but it doesn't mean I have to listen to it. Or maybe I should listen to it and pause for a moment, take in more of what's going on so I'm more thoughtful in whatever I say or do next. So I like to use it as a tool, you know, not a weapon against myself, But in the moments where it really is just fear, doubt, feeling lesser than, I remind myself, one, I'm here for a reason. Someone put me here. I didn't just like appoint myself, you know, to the job. Um, I interviewed or people vetted me and they hired me. So I'm, I I didn't get here alone. Mm -hmm. And that reminder alone sometimes is enough to like, snap out of it and quiet the internal saboteur. Sometimes it's just one of the things I have to think about. So of course I deserve to be here. Someone put me here. The second thing that works for me is I remind myself I have a job to do. Like my job description actually entails me speaking up, holding people accountable, asking questions, challenging. And if I don't, who will? And what a shame to have a seat at the table and not use my voice. That self-talk, which these are tools, you don't have much time in the moment when the doubt hits, but these are tools I've learned to use that were really helpful in the early days. Over time, the voice has quieted uh, because I do have a different type of humble confidence and inner confidence. I've had enough moments of the internal saboteur that she doesn't show up very often in my mind, but if it does, then, you know, then I have the tools and techniques to listen and learn from it and pause and quiet the voice and carry on. So when we talk about the internal saboteur, well, because you shared this, our learning curve is going to be sharpened as a result of everything you went through. So you had two main points. Somebody appointed you to be there. Now for people who have their own business and they're like, well, nobody really appointed me to be here. What would you say to the starting entrepreneur, somebody who's been in the game one to three years, one to four years, and they're like, do I belong here? How would you shift the conversations between the internal saboteur in that particular case? I would challenge them to use this phrase, this belief, is there are examples of people who have done more with less. Like there are people who are less deserving than you in, you know, in broader, you know, in broader roles of responsibility. And then back to the question of if not me, who, if not now, when, like actually, why not you? 
And so somewhere in there are some answers that would really be helpful to someone who is, in fact, sort of self-appointed by way of being a solopreneur or uh, a small business founder CEO. Thank you. Thank you for creating that distinction for both sets of our listeners. Now, I know that you really, you, you have a unique skill set. You're very good at helping business owners who make over 20 million a year, like scale their endeavors. But what are your biggest tips on getting to the next level? Like at what point do you start noticing pressure points, struggles, signs that that, that business owner is ready to scale? And then what are your first few recommendations for them to do so? I mean, one of the biggest leveling up elements is understanding your people needs. And if a company has 10, 12, 15 people, and they don't have someone overseeing people, it's time. And that is one of the biggest unlocks, right? Helps helps you recruit better, helps you retain better, helps you get more out of the culture that you're building, more out of the people that you have. There, there is a point where you need a people person that isn't the founder CEO, and it is always earlier than people think. And founder CEOs who do scale almost always look back and say, I wish I would have put someone over people sooner. I mean, just every time. A little different when we're talking super tiny, like one to three people, but in that, you know, I've got enough people scaling, even if a majority of those people are contractors, right? If you are managing a gad of humans, (laughs) then, then some expertise needs to be applied to the people side of things. Otherwise you're not getting the highest return on your investment. So there are many things I could mention with the topic of scaling, but that is one area that I see is pretty consistent. And I a hundred percent co-sign on that. The minute that we started attributing people in the organization to manage other people and manage large scale projects, that's when we really felt like the rubber hit the road. Now that's for people with teams of, let's say between 17, anything over 17 and 25, like, okay, But let's go back to the roots. If you were starting all over again and you were going to say, I'm going to start my own business from your perspective, consulting, running, talking to entrepreneurs, what would be the first things that you would do as a new small business owner? It's a broad question. So hopefully I'll get to the areas that are helpful to the, to the audience. But one is, are you clear on why your customer needs your product? Do you understand their life stages, their psychographic, what problem you're solving. I mean, just be obsessed with the customer or the client or, you know, whatever the right word is in your business. I mean, there's nothing more important when it's just you and an idea and you actually start making something of staying incredibly close to the customer. The next thing I'll I'll keep on the people side, when you do start hiring, give them skin in the game. You want people to act like an owner, to be an owner, treat them like an owner, hold them accountable like an owner, but pay them like an owner as well. That might mean profit sharing. It might mean equity in the company. And that doesn't apply to everyone in all roles. But typically those first few key roles, if you treat everyone like an assistant, that's the type of work you're going to get. Yet there are some folks that you can hire literally as an assistant give them ownership in the company, and they're an incredible right-hand or partner to you as that first hire. And so thinking about the connection between the business outcomes, the first few hires, and the amount of care and concern given to your customers that, going back to the first point, hopefully you're staying absolutely obsessed with. Those are pretty powerful early mindsets to have. I think, I feel like I'm going to school. I'm going to church and I'm going to school all at the same time. This is powerful. Okay. So 
I want to know that there's been a shift, I think, as social media has happened, as we all understand we're building a personal brand. And I actually encountered you by way of Clubhouse, re kind of got adjusted to you and started following you on different social platforms. As you build your personal brand, what are some of the things that you're focusing on? Like, what are pieces of content that you're like, this is what I want to be known for? And then how are you deploying that out on social? For me, it's just, is it authentic to me? You know, consistent. There are plenty of conversations I'd love to join. There are plenty of topics that are amazing that I'd love to be a part of, but they're not the trunk of my tree. Uh, And the trunk of my tree is leadership, managing people, navigating change, you know, making decisions that have far-reaching implications, the ability to deploy humble confidence, the ability to lead yourself, you know, as well as others. So that that's the main trunk of my tree. That's my content. It's what I've lived and done for decades. So I have a lot of lived experience and a tremendous amount of unquestionable credibility. Um, and it's what I've also spoken about as a public speaker for well over a decade. So I not only have the experience, I am very seasoned in storytelling around the topic. Uh, the other piece is is brands, building brands, not necessarily personal brands, although it does translate, um, consumer brands, brands of companies, product um, strategy related to brands, brand architecture. I mean, that's the other, you know, it's a big branch off of my tree where also I have a lot of lived experience, ton of credibility, extremely seasoned in storytelling and teaching around the topic. And so those are my main bodies of content. And then there are themes that run through them that have to do with what's going on in the world at the moment. Could be leadership, could be diversity, could be women, could be um, social impact. You know, these aren't my aren't my main pillars, but I have an obvious connection to them and often am joining those conversations and working that into my content to tap into a movement, a moment, a community, a particularly timely conversation. And then how I think about deploying that, it's just, you know, what's right for for the channel. And so Clubhouse is a perfect channel for my experience because it's audio and it's communication, much like you holding uh, a podcast. And and it's live, just like my keynotes or panels and so there and, and like leading teams. And so there are many things about live social audio that connect authentically to the way I have walked through the world and mentored one to many and learned myself. And so I don't have to tweak a lot for Clubhouse. Instagram, interestingly, because I'm more leadership content, I'll occasionally work in some of my quotes or mantras or speeches, but there I show up more as a mom. Um, and just a citizen of the world. But I still weave in the things I stand for, again, a few of my clubhouse rooms and keynotes, but it's less like business, business, business for me, and more um, leaning into showing up as a human, yet not separating, you know, work and personal, just weaving it together. And then Twitter, interestingly, is it's more the snippets of thought leadership. I don't talk as much about my family on Twitter. I also don't try to teach people full-blown lessons in leadership on Twitter as well. It's more of my place to be a little witty, um, engage with others, celebrate others. I really try to use Instagram and Twitter as places to repost, 
shine a light on other amazing people, just like lift up the community of amazing humans that I have the, you know, the privilege to know. So a lot of the things that I've been running into when it comes to creating content on Clubhouse, when it comes to business owners is the life cycle of content. Do you ever feel like you're creating content almost in a vacuum on Clubhouse because it doesn't sit in perpetuity? And for people who are listening at the time of this recording, which it'll probably be double this by the time we actually drop it. But you have, Kat has 1.3 million followers on Clubhouse. So people, she's a force on Clubhouse. So we could sit here and tap around that. But before anybody will actually say like, I want to learn more about Clubhouse, the thing I'm hearing the most is if I'm going to spend 30 minutes anywhere, I might want to keep it on a platform where it sits over time and is discoverable at a later point in time. What is your response to that? Hmm. So a few things. One, what's interesting is you can record on Clubhouse and publish elsewhere. So you could get the best of all worlds if you want. And I do sometimes record and then publish snippets or pieces as a part of other people's podcasts or some other platform. And and I will likely start recording and publishing more of the Clubhouse chats because people afterward are like, oh, it's a shame. I'm one of those people, Kat. I'm one of those people. I'm like, how did I miss this one? It was so good. Exactly. But at the same time, there is a beauty in just connecting. And while I am not uh, in the camp of it should only be there, like if you weren't there too bad, you know, I do appreciate the value one to your point, the value of my time. Um, And I appreciate that recording it and publishing it can provide more reach for that message and therefore more efficient use of my time and publishing snippets of it also helps more people know, come join me on clubhouse next time. There's, there is a benefit of recording. Um, but some of the conversations that I have are a bit more, we bring a lot of people up. It's more intimate. We want them to ask questions. And if it's recorded because you have to let people know it's recorded, they have to acknowledge before they speak, you know, that might change the vibe a little bit of how, vulnerable and open people want to be, I mean, it's still a public platform, so they're not that worried about it or they wouldn't be saying it. Um, so I do, I do like a mix. I, I think where I will go with it as the platform grows and evolves and the tools to record are a little lower friction and this becomes a bit more normal is I'll probably record easily 25% of my sessions that are a bit more planned and deeper dives on topics and let those live on a site somewhere. I think that is the best of a lot of worlds. And, and then we'll see where I go from there. Oh, that's real good. I love that idea. Also, when it comes to creating content on clubhouse, you, were you an early adopter? Like when did you get in? People often say like, at what point, like there was obviously early adopters get the lion's share of growth. How did you, how did that journey start for you in clubhouse? Yeah, I I was one of the first few thousand. I don't know how many thousand, but I joined in May of 2020. So there was nothing like there were barely any people on the East coast. I'd start a room and it was crickets. I mean, I would get so (laughs) nervous that no one would come and then people would show up, but it was three, you know, or four. And then it's almost like, a random blind date coffee shop, (laughs) just getting to know, that's it. Like, how are you? How'd you get on clubhouse? Tell me about yourself. I mean, that's what it was in the early days. Um, And then as the, as the platform grew as tools to actually title a room, 
plan a room, you know. As the- wow, you couldn't title the room. So then what was the thing that kept you going? The people, the connections. I mean, one, it was peak lockdown. So just even getting to know yes. new people while there were no more conferences, I couldn't go in a cafe. I mean, it felt like a virtual yes. neighborhood. And it was, I mean, there were some people where it was like a virtual cafe, like your neighborhood where it was like, good morning, Rahaf. Good morning, Julie. Good morning, Denise. <laughs> I would only see them for, you know, 20 minutes. How are you guys today? And, oh, did you wow. see this little news? And it, it was like that. And then, you know, as it evolved, it became a bit more, there, it's still that for a lot of people. I mean, the lion's share of rooms on Clubhouse are small social rooms. It's yes. like 10 to 20 people who are talking. And then what, yes. that, what the app is known for, these bigger names, thousands of people, titled programming, and there will be more of that. But I I do believe as people come onto the platform, what I hope is protected is them discovering the magic of small interactions in addition to what is now, you know, more proper programming and rooms. I just want to pause here and repeat this diamond is Kat is outlining the power of small connections because a lot of the trepidation I hear from business owners is, oh, it's like five people showed up. Like, that's incredible. We would never ever or 15 people showed up. And I'm like, in the early days of you ever creating a piece of content, if there are 15 people who will listen to you for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, that is such a powerful piece. So let's not overlook. So Kat is saying the beginning power of Clubhouse was the small connections. And that's what she says the power will continue to be. So let's not put ourselves in a competition or a vanity metric competition of we should have 800 or a thousand people. It's like, those are great, but there's also power in small groups. So thank you for that. Now I'm totally geeking out here, but... <laughs> Do you ever think that you're going to use badges or monetization on any of these platforms specifically because you have such a large audience on Clubhouse? So for people who are unfamiliar and they're listening, you know, there are uh, platforms like YouTube and Clubhouse where you have a badge. So somebody can pay to hear before they hear it. Or like, let's say Kat just dropped mad knowledge about leadership. And I'm like, you know what? I want to, I want to pay Kat $5 for this. Like, what do you think is going to happen to the app? Do you think you're going to use it? If so, how, like, what are early predictions? So monetization has started on Clubhouse and the way it's showing up first, it's not for everyone because they're testing and learning, but they chose hundreds of people to pilot it. A broad swath, like all over the world, very diverse types of creators, people who are more public speakers and leadership, like information entrepreneurs like me, some who are musicians, others who are comedians, some who are more like journalists, you know, on the platform, I mean, really broad swath. And right now what it looks like is just a contribution to your point. So it just says pay. So you could think of it as buying someone a cup of coffee. If it's a musician, you could view it as tipping. If it's someone to your point, dropping a lot of knowledge and you think, man, I would, I would have paid hundreds of dollars to get into an hour conference with her and I didn't have to pay anything. Here's $10. And so people are doing that now. Uh, And that is enabled on my profile now because I'm part of that pilot group to give feedback, but I don't talk about it a lot because I'm not, you know, asking people to have people tipped you. Yeah. Oh my God. This is a full circle moment, Kat. Like you got tipped at Hooters and you're getting tipped on clubhouse. Look at that. I mean, oh my. That's right. Wow. I, I don't promote it, you know, because that's, it's a little less relevant for my content style, 
where the one of the next layers of monetization um, outside of a micro contribution, which is what's in place now getting tested. And I appreciate it, you know, when somebody's like, oh, here, and I then I usually pay that forward and immediately go tip somebody else on Clubhouse. Like, oh, so you cool. know, um, so cool. and so, and $5 is like, there's no way to say it yet, but in my mind, I'm buying them a cup of coffee. Like that's what right. I'm doing. I'm like oh, buying right. them a cup of coffee or $10 is like, wow. Um, but I, I've contributed uh, $200 to someone who was doing a fundraiser in a room and, you know, it goes to their stripe. So I'm just oh, trusting they'll do the right thing so with it. But, cool. um, so that, that, you know, think about all that that can enable. Yeah. One of the next things coming is events like ticketed events on clubhouse. And that is far more my jam, right? That's more good. That's like holding a conference. And instead of me needing to rent out a hotel and do all these things, and it's tough for people to attend, I can hold a members only clubhouse room or an invite only clubhouse room. That's a ticketed event. Now that's not in place yet. It's just what the founders have talked about is coming. And then eventually they've talked about the ideas of things in the neighborhood of subscriptions where it's, you know, it's similar to ticketed event, but it's a subscription. And then you get this unique access that is different and better, almost like a newsletter where you've got free subscriptions and then you've got paid subscriptions. And with paid subscription, you get something more frequent, more intimate, more special. And so that's down the road. And I am just so excited about this for Clubhouse. One, people are spending their time there creating, adding value. Why should they not be um able to monetize there. The other thing I love about it is Clubhouse is basically saying, we are trying for now, for as long as we can, to avoid having our revenue model be advertising Mm -hmm. and having the revenue model be built on, we only get paid when creators get paid. And that alignment of values and effort is really powerful. You know, all of these other big social platforms didn't make it easy for creators to monetize until way down the road. And Clubhouse is literally starting that way. I mean, they're learning, they're exploring, they'll figure it out. It's nowhere near what it will be. And eventually there may be other types of monetization. And yes, at some point they could end up taking advertising. Uh, But every Sunday in the Clubhouse town hall, the founders say, we want our revenue model to be aligned with the creator economy. We we want creators who spend their time, who make this platform what it is, whether they're doing comedy shows, or a room where they're meowing like cats, or leading a church service, or holding an intellectual discussion, or celebrating the launch of a a movie with a studio, or an NFT with an art, like whatever you're doing, if you're creating value, and people see value in that, we want it to be easy for you to spend more time and have this be actually income generating, if that's what you choose. And so I'm just... I'm, you know, I am a fan. I have been a fan of this platform um, since the early days, even without all the great functionality it has. And I am more bullish than I've ever been on live social audio, but specifically um, on Clubhouse, because I'm seeing more content, more creators, and yet at the same time, continuing to see these small social rooms and knowing that it's almost like think of it as a big conference center or a hotel. And in one area, there's a big conference going on and another down another hall, there's a couple of smaller company meetings. And then in the lobby, there's friends meeting up, you know, and that is what clubhouse is becoming, but global. That's incredible. So have they openly talked about the revenue share, like what clubhouse takes or is that not very public right now? They're taking nothing. 
it goes directly oh. from the giver to the receiver through Stripe. And so there's Stripe fees that get pulled out of it, but you know, they're learning. And I, what I love about what Clubhouse is doing is they're saying, this is imperfect and we shouldn't be taking a piece until we've really got it dialed in. This is part of the experiment to figure that out. So right now Clubhouse isn't taking a chunk. So for anyone who's like an artist, a spoken word poet, a musician, if you feel that your gifts might be appreciated in an audio platform. It's a great time to be experimenting on Clubhouse. I couldn't agree more. I, I wish there were so many more creators who had the ability for somebody like me to buy them the virtual cup of coffee. I feel like I've gotten so much value. I feel like I've gone to the university of Clubhouse. That's how I genuinely feel. Like I have an MBA because of Clubhouse. So I would gladly buy a few cups of coffee. So lastly, as we close it out, I definitely into social media. And I kind of sort of suspect that with the popularity of Clubhouse, if Instagram were to launch an audio only feature, do you think it would take off in the same way? Like, I know you have an Instagram audience. Like at what point do you start thinking about the strategies as you're building out your personal brand? What does that look like for you? Yeah. I mean, most of the social platforms are adding audio. I mean, this is audio 3.0. Audio 1.0 was radio. 2.0 is podcasting. 3.0 is live social audio. Yeah. And I just think there's so much room. Twitter spaces, it's great. I think whatever Facebook layers in is going to be awesome for the people who are there. But audio isn't all it's about. What Clubhouse has is community. And it feels like an appropriate place for audio discovery. Whereas on Twitter, I want little sound bites. I mean, maybe I'll see at the top someone holding a space that's really cool. And I will absolutely use Twitter spaces. Like, I think it's fantastic. It's very smart. It feels very different and incremental to me than, than Clubhouse. And so if Instagram added it, you know, Slack has added it. Discord already exists And so for me, it's what the community is representing, this collection of easy discovery from music to well-known authors to parents talking about tips for kids to a comedy room to um, cooking, you know, experiences. I mean, the discovery on Clubhouse is just so rich and it's so low friction. You know, I don't have to be looking at it and engaging with it in the way that I do other social platforms, at least visually. And so I just think there's a ton of room for audio. I think it's super smart for all of these platforms to experiment um, and layer it in. But Clubhouse is more than just a space to talk and an audio as a function. It is a community in addition to the technology. I agree. Kat, number one, thank you for geeking out with me about Clubhouse. Thank you for talking so clearly and distinctly about leadership. And also thank you for digging deep and speaking from two perspectives within an organization, within leadership, as well as identifying and empathizing with the person who's feeling at the same time, starting their own business and telling themselves that the internal saboteur will not prevail, at least not today. Tomorrow we will de- we will deal with tomorrow then. Not today, Satan. Not today, <laughs> internal saboteur with horns. Not today. <laughs> Kat, how can people find all of your amazingness, specifically? Specifically, we'll start off on Clubhouse because that's where you reign queen, but as well as other things to go deep with your content. Uh, um, I'm in most of the places, not all of the places. So Clubhouse, certainly. Uh, Instagram, I'm Cat Cole ATL. Twitter, I'm Cat Cole ATL. Uh, Substack, I have a newsletter called Checking In. And certainly LinkedIn, uh, where I share articles and more professional content. So join me on any of those platforms. Kat, thank you a thousand times over. Thank you for speaking your truth, using your voice and standing in your purpose. I appreciate you. Thank you. 
My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Kat as much as I did. If you loved this episode, please subscribe to the Jasmine Star Show from wherever you're tuning in from today. This will guarantee you never miss another episode and it will make my heart burst with gratitude. Until next time, friends, I look forward to chatting with you soon. 